from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. The always fabulous Marta McDowell, the garden author from Chatham, New Jersey, and the author of All the President's Gardens, featured in episode 545 of the show, one of my favorites, is on the show today to talk about her latest book, The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And it tells the tale of the plants and places of the beloved author of the Little House series. Now, if you read Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House books, then today's show will be an extra special treat for you. In fact, my own well-worn paperbacks of the series from the 1970s are sitting happily on a shelf in our loft. My mom brought them up to me. She knew how special they were. She hung on to them when I left home and then brought them to my house after we moved to lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and I have them still today. Chatting with Marta is extra special for me because if you look on the map that's right at the front of the book showing all the places that Laura Ingalls Wilder lived, my hometown of Worthington, Minnesota, right on the prairie, is pretty much smack dab in the middle of that map. Growing up, Laura's stories really resonated with my Midwestern worldview. Now, one of the many reasons most of us have a soft spot in our hearts for these books is because Laura was so descriptive and she was a natural storyteller. If you're like me, I think you may be surprised by the amount of material in Laura's books devoted to the natural world, especially now when we look back as adults on all of these stories we read as kids, and we probably missed that. We were so caught up in all of the stories, but now seeing the books through the lens that Marta provides for us, it's so obvious. Ma's Gardens the landscapes that Laura and her family experienced every single day, and then their just overall reverence for life, plants, animals, and human life. It's all cherished by Laura and her family. Prepare to be amazed by the images that you're going to recall in your mind's eye, the passages from the book that are just sewn right into your childhood heart. And enjoy a renewed appreciation for the lasting tribute that Laura created when she wrote about the world of the pioneers in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. The world of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the frontier landscapes that inspired the Little House books with Marta McDowell. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. Well, I always like to start the show out by saying thank you for listening to the Still Growing Podcast, especially if you're a first-time listener, a special welcome to you. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, welcome back. 
I hope that you listen to many different gardening podcasts. That's so important. There aren't many of them out there. And if you've found a favorite, go ahead and share it with me. I'd love to share that with the listeners of this show as well. Podcasts are near and dear to my heart. I think they're such a wonderful way to grow and learn as a gardener. So I hope you get the chance to check out other programs this week. I'm truly, sincerely honored that you're spending some time here listening to the Still Growing Podcast. And if you enjoy the show, go ahead and share it with your gardening friends and family. That's how podcasts grow, mostly through word of mouth. Thanks in advance for doing that. I'd also like to invite you to join the listener community for the show. It's a free private Facebook group that I host for listeners of the show. And these folks are made up of all skill levels and locations. And you can find it very easily on Facebook just by typing in the name of our group into the search bar. Just search for Still Growing Podcast Group, and the listener community will show up at the top of the search results in Facebook. And then you just click on that and request to join, and we'll admit you into the group. Now, there are a number of benefits that you can enjoy just by joining the group. First, you'll have access to all of the garden articles that I curate for you because they'll appear in that group. Second, the Facebook group is the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for any show giveaways. In fact, drumroll please, our winners of Barbara Pleasant's Homegrown Pantry Books are Laura Gonzalez and Deborah Anderson Laterza. Congratulations, ladies. Go ahead and private message me with your contact information, including your email and your address and we'll get a copy of those books sent out to you. It's always so fun to announce the winners. And, you know, there are a couple of other reasons you should consider the group. You know, one of the things that I had in mind when I created the group is that it would be a place for you to interact with the guests that I bring on the show. It's a way to carry on the conversation. Or if you have questions, and today's guest, Marta McDowell, is in the group. Barbara Pleasant is in the group. In a couple of weeks, Craig LaHoulier will be on the show. He's already in the group. Kylie Bomley, the monarch expert, is in the group. And all of that is happening because of the mission of the show, which is to help you and your garden grow. So joining the group is a great opportunity for you. And then finally, you don't have to worry about spam because everything I share in the listener community is something I work very hard to make sure is helpful and worthwhile for you. Plus, it's free and easy to join. Again, all you have to do is the next time you're in Facebook, just search for the Still Growing Podcast group and our group will pop right up. Just request to join and we'll admit you into the group. With that, I'd like to welcome new members to our listener community, Kiet Ahn, Susie Nashar Shuma, Jessica Lynn Rose, Phyllis Marie, Tori Skizis, Susan Bishop, Carla Whitford, Nadine Keen, Harold Thornbro, Mary Heff, Petey Kitzmiller, Durga Prasad, Sin Barr, Virginia Gonzalez, Nias Kurtup-Eniak, and Lisa Smith. Welcome, you guys. 
this week, there were plenty of great posts from listeners in the group. Listeners shared many beautiful pictures and videos of their gardens. Deborah Anderson Laterza shared a great video of her boulevard planting. She reported that she had seen seven or eight monarchs in her garden, and she's looking forward to going to the Minneapolis Monarch Festival. That's happening this weekend. That'll be fun. Jennifer Konow shared great pictures from her garden as well. Goldfinches were chowing down on echinacea seeds. Various bees were getting covered in pollen on her New England aster. And different kinds of skippers were fighting over the celosia. Spencer Holdley had great success. He picked his first ever pepper, and the plant had had lots of problems. It had dropped most of its blossoms, so he thinks this is the only pepper that he's going to get. (laughs) And then he said, what do you know? I chose a seedless variety. Well, maybe that's all for the best, Spencer. You can start over fresh next year, and he had a beautiful image of an orange pepper. Now, listener Amy Steinhauser wrote in and asked Sue Lufdig a question because Sue had said it was a rough year for peppers. Amy had questioned her and said, why the rough year for peppers? This was Amy's first year growing them from seeds, and she's been disappointed, but she attributed it to her own ignorance about growing peppers. But Sue said, no, it's been cold and wet It hasn't been a super warm summer, and of course, peppers love heat. They need heat. There were lots of posts about butterflies and pollinators in general. Christopher Yoder shared, I always leave little places for the monarchs to rest from the mighty wind on the prairie. Christopher Gardens in Oklahoma, and he managed to capture a few pictures of monarchs, and of course, As I chatted with Kylie this past week, I learned that any monarchs we're seeing this late in the season, those are the monarchs that are going to make that long trip down to the sanctuary in Mexico. So these monarchs have a big job ahead of them, making sure they have water, providing plenty of nectar plants. All of that is very important. Edgeworth Carter shared some really great pictures of his tomatoes. He said he was going to try to ripen them in brown bags with apples, but the brownish discoloration on his tomatoes seems to have been from pillworms. In any case, he had a decent harvest here, looks like. Lots of listeners were sharing pictures of their blooming hydrangea. Phil Coster was tickled. He finally got his hydrangea to bloom. Landscaper Patricia Chandler Newport correctly said it looks pretty young, so give it some time. Holly Tone is a hydrangea's best friend as well. You can also add some monthly sulfur if you want it to bloom blue instead of pink. Now, another suggestion that Patricia had for all of the hydrangea lovers in the group is to put a shrub jacket on the hydrangea or to wrap it in burlap if you're in a cold climate. Patricia is in Michigan, and she had a client who had a hydrangea that just was never blooming for her, and they put a shrub jacket on this hydrangea over the winter, and then it had hundreds of blooms this year. The only thing they can attribute that to is the fact that they had wrapped it in a shrub jacket. Give that a try if your hydrangea isn't blooming and you live in a colder climate. Sue Lufdig shared pictures of her gorgeous neon sedum. It's a beautiful hot pink color, much more vibrant than the Autumn Joy sedum. 
And speaking of Autumn Joy, Danny Perkins shared his beautiful crop of Autumn Joy sedum. He initially wasn't a huge Autumn Joy fan when he planted these plants about four years ago, but he's learned to appreciate their toughness and their reliability, and many gardeners feel the same. Now, with my Autumn Joy, I gave him a haircut right around the 4th of July, and all of those tops that I had cut off the Autumn Joy, I put in soil in clay pots, just small little clay pots, and I tucked those little clippings right into the top, and sure enough, they've all rooted And I have about 12 new plants ready to go. That's exciting. Now, if you're like me and you want more sedum plants in your garden, that is such an easy way to get them. It'll help keep the plant from getting too leggy later on in the season. And you'll have all of those wonderful little baby plants to add to your garden. Listener Christopher Yoder shared great pictures of the Kansas State Extension Center in Colby, Kansas. He had some great pictures of grasses and the All-American selection trials going on there. Lots of listeners shared images of monarchs in their gardens. Listener Amy Walker Collier planted her first pollinator garden this spring because she wanted a monarch way station. She waited all summer and she finally had a monarch visit her garden. Danny Perkins shared images of caterpillars attached to the underside of a fountain on his property. I guess it actually is a bird bath here. But as I learned from Kylie Bomley, those caterpillars create their chrysalises on horizontal surfaces. So the underside of that bird bath is perfect for them. The image that Danny shared showed that caterpillar going into that distinctive J formation right before it goes into the chrysalis stage. In listener plant IDs, listener Amy Walker Collier shared pictures of a plant, a mystery plant, that was identified as smartweed, also known as ladies' thumbs. It's an annual. Listener Leslie Clark said, make sure to pull it before it recedes. Listener Connie Bowers asked if anyone had experience with the incredible smooth hydrangea. It's supposed to be an improvement on the Annabelle hydrangea. And her question was this, does the incredible hydrangea live up to the hype? Do they resist deer? And can they take part shade? And Patricia Chandler Newport replied, yes, yes, and yes. That said, listener Marie Michael John wrote in and said, Connie, I have planted four incredible hydrangeas in the past. They require some serious staking to keep them from flopping over. Of the many different varieties of hydrangea that I grow, they required the most work to keep upright. So that's some more information for Connie to consider. Listener Ashley Holloway shared a beautiful picture of a panda plant. This was a plant she had gotten as a gift, and she was trying to ID it, so the group came through for her. Listener Kathy Martinolik said she had some big, dead-looking patches that have appeared in her very established barberry bushes. 
And then she provided pictures of this and she said, these are in two different locations in my front yard. It's my first year with these guys. Is this normal for the end of the summer or am I in trouble? Now, both Patricia Chandler Newport and Carla Deanna replied back and said, get rid of those barberry. Barberry are terribly invasive. They harbor deer ticks. Plus, they're miserable to trim with all of those thorns, and they're not my personal favorite either. So, Kathy, there is some input from the listener community. You can factor that in as you make your decision about what to do about your barberry. Well, folks in the listener community this week had a ton of fun playing designer with listener John Brian Silverio's property. He posted images of his home and then asked for landscaping advice, what he should be planting around his home. Lots of good tips here. Last time I checked, there were over 100 comments with different ideas for John. So that's great. Finally, in listener love, listener Laura Gonzalez shared a great photo of her beautiful patio. Laura said she was listening to episode 583, the Huga episode, two days ago while she was out doing some watering in the record-breaking 111-degree weather in Scotts Valley, California. And she was listening to the podcast again today in a cool, overcast, 80-degree day. And she said it felt much more thematically appropriate. I can't agree enough with this, Laura. And then she said she had a wonderful little rain shower that happened, which, of course, felt completely miraculous in their very dry climate out there in California. So she said after she took that picture, she was heading in for a hoogalay beverage. Sounds perfect. Well, it's always fun catching up with listener posts in the Facebook group for the show. It's fun for me to be able to interact with you and see all the posts from people who share our passion for gardening and have a curiosity to learn more. So if you're interested in continuing the conversation beyond the podcast, come hang out with us. Don't be shy. Even if you've been listening for a while and have been meaning to join the group, you just haven't gotten around to it, just make sure to do it this week. The next time you're in Facebook, just search for Still Growing Podcast Group, and our group will pop right up. Just request to join. It's completely free. We'll admit you into the group. I look forward to meeting you in the Still Growing Podcast Group. Now, if you have questions or suggestions for the show, you can always call the phone number for the show at 865-333-GROW. That's 865-333-4769. I'd love to hear your voice. If you have questions or comments or suggestions for the show, I always enjoy hearing your feedback. Now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. And it's made up of a dozen different segments from updates on past guests, 
to articles featuring fascinating folks in the world of horticulture that I'd love to chat with. And that's something I call the Dream Guest segment. I also cover news and information on special topic areas like sustainability and science. And then the other segments are really designed to honor the commitment of the show to helping you and your garden grow. And they are the how-to DIY segment, the continuing ed segment, the plant spotlight, shopping, recipes, inspiration, and quotables. Now, what's nice about this for you is that you can stay abreast of the news in horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week. And you can easily check out these curated articles and posts for yourself because I share all of it with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast group. So if you hear something and you want to read the full article, there's no need to take notes or track down links. Just head on over to the group and join. Let's kick things off with the guest update segment. Upcoming guest Craig LeHoulier shared a great post. He's wrapping up his 2017 season in a series of summary blogs by crop. Craig's a subject matter expert when it comes to tomatoes, eggplants, and peppers. And that's exactly what he's posting about. He said he's writing about eggplants and peppers, complete and posted, that's all done. And now he's working on indeterminate tomatoes and will end with progress and results from his dwarf tomato project. So if you've been wondering about that and wanting some more information, all of that will be shared on his blog. You can go check it out. He also shared a very inspiring picture of the wonderful varieties of tomatoes that he harvests from his garden. And he laid them all out on his beautiful dining room table And I love how he does it because he kind of makes the rainbow. It's kind of like the Skittles commercial, Taste the Rainbow. Well, he'll do the same thing with his tomatoes. And he'll start with his yellows, and then that kind of morphs into the greens, and then the oranges, and then the reds. And it's absolutely beautiful. He did the same thing in his book. Just gorgeous pictures of all the different types of varieties that Craig grows in his garden. And if you're looking for expertise and advice when it comes to tomatoes, Craig is definitely the guy you want to talk to. Same thing for eggplants and peppers. He's a great resource. I was tickled to get the chance to talk to him personally. So that episode is coming out, let's see, that'll be the end of September. That episode will come out on September 29th. It's episode 587, and we talk specifically about the wonderful varieties that are featured in his fantastic book, Epic Tomatoes. Such a great resource. In sustainability this week, there was an article that I found that talked about incorporating antiques into the garden and how antiques, the right antique, can be a true focal point for your garden. This was really great and a wonderful way to incorporate sustainability in our garden art, in the things that we put in our garden. And there were lots of great ideas here for how to recycle and upcycle some of the old things that you might find searching for treasures for your garden. In the continuing ed segment is a great article from Gardenista called 10 Everyday Ideas to Steal from Estate Gardens, and this is by Claire Colson. Now, here were some of my favorites. 
The first is to wrap the house. So strategically pick some walls in your house where you will have climbers, whether you're using roses or hydrangeas or clematis, You've got climbers that are adding that extra layer, another element of texture to a house. Another suggestion I really liked is to mark your boundaries. The example they gave was using a powder-coated steel fence to mark the perimeter of a property. But if you have exposed edges of your property, You won't believe the difference it can make to how your garden feels if you enclose that space. And then the other one that I really liked is where it talked about making an entrance, thinking about the entrances to your garden rooms. If you have a gate or an arbor or some type of arch that people walk through, whether it's a natural arch formed by a tree and branches or whether there's an actual gate that people walk through, just paying more attention to those entrances and making them extra inviting and intriguing. In the how-to DIY segment, American Meadows shared a great post called How to Create a Wildflower Bouquet, and then they shared the best varieties for wildflower bouquets. Making their list, sunflowers, zinnias, Cosmos, Bachelor Buttons, Baby's Breath, Daisies, and Sweet Peas. Finally, past guest Nell Foster, featured back in episode 558, wrote a great post on how to care for and grow star jasmine. This was a super helpful post, and of course, Nell has that wonderful YouTube channel. In the plant spotlight this week, I shared an image of a stunning iris, and it's called Sundancer. Now, this is an iris that people are going crazy for, but Patricia Chandler Newport wrote in, she said, I don't personally understand the appeal of a tan flower. And she's right. There's an awful lot of brown and tan to this particular iris. It's a combination of tan and I would say purple, kind of a light lilac color. Patricia wrote, meh, I've had a bunch of dwarf brown and tan iris that I dug out three years ago in a row and gave them all away. They were hard to sell even at free. Well, I wrote her back and said, see, now I haven't experienced it, so I'm all in. It's very thrilling to me, the prospect of growing these. We'll see if I feel the same way after they're in my garden. Jen McGinnis chimed in. She said that she thought it would look very pretty paired with a yellow flower. And Sue Luftig chimed in, I must have one. So they do have some appeal. But of course, you might feel differently about them once they're in your garden. So we'll have to report back. In the news, Amy over at Get Busy Gardening shared a wonderful Twitter update. She said, did you know that canna lilies can be grown from seed? Take a closer look at the dead flower heads on your plants and see if you can find seeds. I was really surprised to see this. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they could be grown from seed. Peggy Ann Montgomery said that she's done it and it's pretty easy. Listener Christopher Yoder said, if you find a seed, it's a real treat. You have to crack the epidermis layer of the seed and soak it to get it to germinate. Susan Hartwig said she's grown many from seed. 
And then here's her tip. She says she puts about six in a chip dip container, and then she separates them when they get about six inches tall. Then she repots them. She cautions that they'll grow fast and they'll bloom even the first year if you start them early. All you need is a southern windowsill. Also in the news this week, AmericanGardenHistory.blogspot.com shared a great post called Gardening Books in Early America, owned by Richard Cranch in Massachusetts. And then this article I absolutely loved because it went on to share all of the wonderful titles of the books. He had The Gardener's Dictionary by Philip Miller, A General History of Plants by John Gerard, and many others. I love those old gardening books. And then finally in Gardenista, Meredith Swinehart wrote a post called Expert Advice, Architect's Favorite Porch Paint Colors. And this is on my to-do list this year. I've got to get my porch painted before the snow falls. And here we go. Here are some of the top paint colors for 2017 for your porch. I won't give you all of them, but I'll share some of my favorites here. There's Benjamin Moore Summer Blue. It's a very subtle robin egg blue. On the image that they share here, they used it on the ceiling of a porch. There's Benjamin Moore Simply White. It's very crisp and clean looking. Then there's the absolutely soothing Benjamin Moore Stonington Gray. This is a very subtle gray color, very neutral, and it's not a cold gray. Finally, there is this really rich, dark color, and it's from Bear, and it's called Underwater. Bear describes this as a gray-blue paint, but it's definitely very heavy, very rich looking. There's lots of great colors here to choose from. Lots of great designers have weighed in on why they like these particular colors. And that's how I like to pick my paint colors. I'll just read through what the designers have picked and then I just stand on their shoulders. I figure, why reinvent the wheel? Why go through the agony of testing different paint colors if this is what these guys have been trained to do? Pick paint colors, in this case, for our porches. In the Dream Guest segment, past guest Jen McGinnis of the blog Frau Zinni shared a wonderful video of a nursery that's near her, and it's called Nature Works Organic Garden Center. Now, what I love about this garden center and the reason I have them in the Dream Guest segment this week is that they do regular Facebook Lives from their garden center. And this past week, what they did is they did a whole show about the nectar plants that monarchs want. And they called themselves the Monarch Mamas. And they were all out there talking about these nectar plants. And they do such a great job. I know Jen follows this group on Facebook and gets tons of great information from them. And they're very entertaining. So that's why NatureWorks Organic Garden Center made the Dream Guest segment this week. In science, London has reopened their garden museum. Not only is it the world's first museum of garden history, it's housed in an old church. If you're visiting London yet this year, check out the brand new reopened garden museum. 
In recipes this week, listener Julie Heinen shared a great post. And this one is for the best dill pickles ever. And it's very easy. There's no canning involved. Sounds like a good one. Then finally, Botanical Interests shared a wonderful soup recipe. You know, it's soup season now. And this one's for spinach, sausage, and tortellini soup. Perfect for the cool weather we've been having in Minnesota. Perfect if you're going to do a soup night, like a Sunday night soup night. And the tortellini means that the kids will actually eat this soup. So there you go. In shopping this week, I wanted to encourage you to go out and get the book called The Complete Guide to Saving Seeds. This is such a great book for this time of year. So many people have questions about saving seeds, keeping them viable. This book is really well done. It's relatively new. It's called The Complete Guide to Saving Seed. And you can get it on Kindle for 10 bucks, or you can prime it on Amazon for less than 18. Also, I wanted to make you aware of a little shopping I did this week. First, I'd like to give a shout out to Young and Richards. It's a wonderful little gift shop in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That's where we went over Labor Day. They had lovely little garden accessories in addition to chocolate and fudge in this wonderful little gift store. So we had a great time there. And of course, it's located on Phillips Avenue. So if you find yourself in Sioux Falls, make your way over to Phillips Avenue. It's this cute little downtown area that's got all these wonderful little shops and fountains. And there's an old diner there you can eat in. There's a great pizza place. We had pizza there really like this part of Sioux Falls and just had a wonderful time at Young and Richards. Good people there. Then the other thing that made shopping for me this week is this wonderful diffuser that I actually found at a garden center near my house and I fell in love with it. I bought it. It's by Hill House Naturals. It's one of those reed diffusers, and the fragrance is called Golden Embers. Now, when I bought this at the garden center, I paid 40 bucks for it, and that's the going price for it if you go on Amazon as well. However, if you head on over to Hill House Naturals, just go right to their website, you can actually get this diffuser for about 32 bucks. And it's my favorite fragrance for fall. I just can't tell you how wonderful it is. I love walking into the house now with this diffuser because it just smells like fall in the house. It's a very pleasant smell. It's by Hill House Naturals. And it was $32 just buying it directly off their website. I love it. All right. And Inspiration is a wonderful post that was shared on the essentialherbal.blogspot.com. And it's all about using salt blends from your garden to preserve your herbs for later use. So if you've never done that before, you're going to want to get lots of kosher salt or lots of sea salt, some type of coarse salt, and then work in small batches to preserve your herbs. Now, the salt that's shared in this recipe that I thought looked excellent incorporates rosemary, lemon zest, and pink Himalayan salt 
Talk about a pretty salt to use. This would be a great gift as well. Finally, for the quotable segment this week, I chose quotes from Laura Ingalls Wilder. Here we go. This one's from The Long Winter. The sky was coldly blue and the whole world was white. This one is from By the Shores of Silver Lake. Down the slope of the little hill, patches of wild crocus spread yellow and blue in the young grass. Here's another from On the Banks of Plum Creek. They rolled and laughed in the crackling straw. Then they climbed the stack and slid down it again. And then this one. Often a butterfly stopped to rest there. Then Laura watched the velvety wings. Here's one from Farmer Boy. For days, mother and the girls made jellies and jams and preserves. And for every meal, there was huckleberry pie or blueberry pudding. Then this one from Farmer Boy. The meadows were rosy purple with the blossoms the bees loved best. And then I really liked this one that was from Little House in the Big Woods. And it totally reminded me of that episode on Huga back in episode 583. The attic and the cellar were full of good things once more. And Laura and Mary had started to make patchwork quilts. Everything was beginning to be snug and cozy again. The pumpkins and the squashes were piled in orange and yellow and green heaps in the attic's corners. Ah, so sweet. Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. And I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, Let's transition to the topic of today's show, the world of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the frontier landscapes that inspired the Little House books with Marta McDowell. Patricia McLaughlin, the author of Sarah Plain and Tall and winner of the Newbery Medal, said this about Marta's latest book. This well-researched, sweeping book details the life of Laura Ingalls Wilder and those who came before her. It is clear that the different landscapes shaped them, particularly Laura and Pa. The original art of Garth Williams and Helen Sewell deepens the poignancy and power of Laura's prairie, since today only 1% of it survives. Laura's work has preserved it for us. This book preserves it for us. Isn't that a great review? And I couldn't agree more. Plus, Marta is just so lovely to talk to because she's got the mind of an archivist and the heart of a gardener. You're going to really enjoy this little trip down memory lane, including hearing about some little-known facts about the real Ingalls and Wilder families, and also get the chance to appreciate the side of Laura and Almanzo as people who loved tending the earth. Check out this passage from On the Banks of Plum Creek by Laura Ingalls Wilder. 
It's featured on the back of the book jacket for Marta's book. Here's what it says. One morning, the whole world was delicately silvered. Every blade of grass was silvery, and the path had a thin sheen. When the sun came up, the whole prairie sparkled. Millions of tiny, tiny sparks of color blazed on the grasses. This is just one of the many examples of Laura Ingalls Wilder appreciating what the world around her had to offer. Here's another. Rabbits stood up with paws dangling, long ears twitching, and their round eyes staring at Mary and Laura. In a post Marta wrote late this past summer for the Little House on the Prairie website, she wrote that she'd like us to consider a thought experiment, one where we stop merely categorizing Laura Ingalls Wilder as an American children's author to start thinking of her as a nature writer as well. Marta reminds us that long before she was a writer, Laura Ingalls Wilder was a gardener and a farmer, growing food for the table and raising crops for sale. Nature was her home, as well as little houses. Through her life and work, Wilder sowed a deep appreciation for the world outside one's own door. Her books still inspire budding naturalists to plant, preserve, and appreciate their own wilder gardens. Now, before I continue, let me give you a challenge as well, something to set the stage in your mind. Can you remember the covers of the Little House books? For Little House in the Big Woods, Laura is holding her doll with eyes made from plant dye. For On the Banks of Plum Creek, Laura is running barefoot over the top of her sod house, which is covered in native prairie wildflowers that Laura would often describe picking for Ma. For these happy golden years, Laura and Almanzo are holding hands in front of, wait for it, apple trees, something that would figure so prominently into their life story. Marta shares even more of that original art by Helen Sewell and Garth Williams, and I was so struck by the nostalgia I felt as I saw those images again. I had spent hours staring at those images when I was a little girl, and I read the books, each of them, many, many, many times. Marta is really great at this type of subject. In fact, it's her specialty. She specializes on the relationship between the pen and the trowel, writing about authors who also nurtured a love for the garden, such as her beloved books featuring Beatrix Potter and poet Emily Dickinson. In fact, Emily Dickinson's Gardens was published by McGraw-Hill in 2005, over a decade ago. And Marta is in the process of revising it for a full-color edition from Timber Press, due out in 2019. I'm really excited to see that. Now, when she's not on the Still Growing podcast, Marta teaches landscape history and horticulture at the New York Botanic Garden. 
She also consults for private clients in public gardens. Timber Press has published her recent books, including The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And my sentimental favorite, All the President's Gardens, made the New York Times bestseller list in 2015 and won an American Horticultural Society Book Award. Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life won a 2014 Gold Award from the Garden Writers Association, and it's in its sixth printing. Now, when I talked with Marta a little bit after the show, I kind of teased her a little bit because I'm like, you really have a knack for picking topics that tug at people's heartstrings. Beatrix Potter, Emily Dickinson, Laura Ingalls Wilder, all of these authors that have a high sentimental quality to them. It seems to be Marta's sweet spot. So let's get a little nostalgic today and a little dewy-eyed at times as well. Here's The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books with Marta McDowell. Well, welcome back, Marta. We had a lovely time when you were on the show to discuss your book, All the President's Gardens, back in episode 545. And now I can't believe you're already back with another book, The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books. Thanks, Jennifer. I am so pleased to be back. Well, before we dive into the book... I found a lovely article that you wrote for a website called littlehouseontheprairie.com, and it was simply called Laura Ingalls Wilder Naturalist. You started off by saying, I'd like to suggest a thought experiment. Instead of categorizing Laura Ingalls Wilder as an American children's author, think of her as a nature writer as well. Well, it wouldn't be the first thing that would come to mind, right? So for most people, they either learned about Laura Ingalls Wilder from the Little House book or from the Little House on the Prairie television show that, you know, many people grew up on or still grow up on in reruns. So, you know, you think about the family and, you know, their adventures and their challenges, but she actually writes a lot about nature in terms of the various places that she lived. And she lived in a lot of different places. That is my case in the book, that the landscapes both inspired her and that she really spent a lot of time writing about them. And so that's really what I focus on. When you were talking about how often she was moving, I was thinking of my own experience growing up reading the books. And when you're reading the books as a child, you start out with the first book, and that's when you're the youngest. That's the first book you start out with. And I feel like it took me years as a kid to get through the first three or four books. In fact, I think I reread many of them. But my general sense was that she was always in that wagon and she was always moving. And so it was really interesting to read your book as an adult and then realize just how much ground they covered. Because even as a little kid growing up in Minnesota, my idea was that she was just trucking around the plains. You know, she was just in Wisconsin or Minnesota or back and forth. I didn't have a sense for how far south she went, the fact that she went into the Dakota territories. I just didn't have a sense for that when I was a little kid. Yeah, I mean, 
mean, it really is. It's a series that is all about mobility. And then if you extend it to her actual life, she also lived for a time in Florida yeah. on the Panhandle. She lived for the majority of her life in the Ozarks in Mansfield, Missouri. Uh, so lots of different places. She wrote about where her husband grew up, which is as far north in New York State as you can go without actually being in Canada. Uh, and she manages to pull off what today we would call writing about different ecosystems. But each one of them has a unique character in the series of books and also in the journalism and the other kind of writing that she did. As I mentioned, I grew up in Worthington, which is just southwest of Walnut Grove. And when I saw the map where you were showing where all of these books were taking place, it was early in in the book, it was right by the prologue. I was looking at that map and I thought, my people were smack dab right in the middle of that map in southwestern Minnesota in northeastern Iowa. So I'm very familiar with this part of the country. The books were such a huge part of my childhood that I found there was such a nostalgic sense that happened for me as I read your book. And the wonderful thing about your book is that you pulled some of the most wonderful images from the original books. And the feeling I had seeing them was like rediscovering old family photos, because these really were images that were part of my childhood. And the the images were from Garth Williams, and I think there was another illustrator that you mentioned. But I, it just was amazing to see those images again. It was like I, I knew them so well. Well, it was a fun process because it was taking images that were illustrating different books, two different editions, but also different books in a series, and then putting them in one book. So, of course, I couldn't include everything. I just had to pick out my favorites. And Helen Sewell, who's the other illustrator, and Garth Williams have very different styles, but somehow they're compatible. You know, when you put them together... They work nicely, I think. And to me, kind of surprisingly, the contemporary photography also just sort of fits in nicely. I mean, I can't take all the credit for it because I'll tell you, uh, a major person in the production of a book is the book designer. And that person, you know, takes the images and text that I send them and turns it into a book. So it really is a collaboration, if you will. Yes. Your book follows Laura and her family around the country. They're settling down, then they move, they settle down, then they move. And all the while, she's talking about the plants and all the biomes and the areas where she's at. But the story begins in the Wisconsin woods near Lake Pepin. And the surprising upshot, no pun intended here, of this section for me was learning that they were growing hops. Yes. <laughs> So, her parents had grown hops uh, when they were first married. So, it was actually before they end up in this area next to Lake Pepin. But if you think about that area in terms of beer, right, it's still a kind of epicenter of beer brewing. Absolutely. You know, for the country, if not the world. 
And here we have hops as a commercial crop, you know, already there and already being grown as a cash crop. So, you know, isn't that a wonderful thing? (laughs) It's something we can connect to. That's what I found in writing the book was there were all sorts of connections for me, not just to garden history, but, you know, to immigrant history, to American history, uh, and to my own personal history, which was kind of a total surprise (laughs) as the book went on, as you no doubt noticed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we'll be talking about that here in a little bit. I loved those pieces as well. That really made it a wonderful touch for the book. The other thing that happened when they were in Lake Pepin was all the logging that was taking place. And I would love for you to read on the bottom of page 25, you describe how Pa was taking down trees. And of course, you do such a wonderful job of helping us imagine what that would have been like back in the mid-1800s. It was not a small feat. Sure. So, you know, Wilder's born in 1867. And so put yourself in this area uh, near Lake Pepin, which was in the woods of Wisconsin and close to what officially is the big woods. If you have ever cut down a tree of any size or watched one being cut down, consider the time, even with gasoline power, that it takes to remove it. What Charles Ingalls, along with his pioneer cohort, accomplished seems unbelievable. He chopped down trees with hand tools. To save time, he also would have girdled trees, cutting through a layer of bark around the tree's circumference. If we use Grandpa Ingalls' metaphor that sap is the blood of the tree, girdling severs its veins. It kills the tree in a season or two, making it easier to remove. The stumps too big to take out were left, and Laura remembered summer and winter, many games that involved childhood acrobatics from them. I love it. You know, the other thing that's on this page that is almost fantastical to look at is the amount of lumber going down the river on its way to the mill. I know. So the Chippewa River was just, you know, it was completely blocked with these logs coming down uh, that they would raft down the river. It was evidently a very dangerous part of the business, getting the logs all moved. Um, And if you drive through this part of Wisconsin today, I mean, there's certainly some some timbered pockets, but it's basically all open agricultural land. You know, the way if I think of Wisconsin – uh, and the parts that I've been, which tend to be further south, it's all, you know, this rolling, beautiful farmland. It wasn't like that then. It really was all forest. Yeah. And so, you know, lumber was a major natural resource that was being extracted, again, to use today's terminology. It's still a big business in that area, but, uh, you know, certainly not what it was before. Well, and following these pages, I I was so surprised to see you mention the hay cradle, because this was a very important harvest tool. And you even have a picture of the actual hay cradle that Laura's family used. It was found in her home in Missouri. Yeah, so 
So if you don't know what a hay cradle is, it's like if you see those pictures of death, I guess it is over over his shoulder, the cradle has uh, um, an extension and some big wooden teeth that lift up the stalks so that they can be um, more efficiently cut. It wasn't a 19th century invention. It was it was actually from the century before, but it was still, at the time, the most efficient way to cut before uh, rotary cutters that were you know, pulled by first animals and then engines uh, came in. But anyway, the hay cradle. So I'd read about this, you know, then you Google it. What does it look like? You go see one in the museum. So I'm out in Mansfield at the Laura Ingalls Wilder home at the museum. And so I'm poking around. I actually spend two days sort of poking around and bothering them. And they were very nice. And one of the guys who worked there took me down to the old cellar because the old cellar remained. They had actually, uh, I think the the barn had come down, but they kept the old cellar and they had a kind of storage area over it uh, and a house. And he pulls out this cradle and it's like, oh my God, (laughs) I have to have a picture of that. Yeah, that's in, because that's you know, was that her father's? I don't know, but it certainly was Almanzo's, and they never got rid of anything. So you know, it, it was definitely in the family. So that was a very exciting moment for me. Oh, absolutely. Well, when I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh! And then I read the caption because you know sometimes when you're writing a book and you want to show something, you'll just pull a stock photo. So the first thing I did when I saw that hay cradle is I thought, oh my gosh, is this the original hay cradle? And there it is. It's right in the captions. It was right in their basement. I couldn't believe it. I know. It it really is spectacular to think. I don't know. It's like going to the Smithsonian and seeing Abraham Lincoln's top hat in a way. Yeah. You know? no, no, no doubt. No <laughs> Maybe doubt. that's too far-fetched a comparison, but it's a physical thing is what I'm trying to say. It's tangible. And so it brings you in a connection with this person who died in 1957, yeah. you know, but here is history that is physical. And so that's part of the reason I just love to go to historic homes and historic sites. Yeah. Well, and I think somewhere in here, too, you were talking about how, and, and you mentioned it just, just a moment ago, that this was not an implement that was, you know, new. This had been around since the time of George Washington. This is how people, you know, worked you know, in the 1700s and the 1800s. So it's such a piece of history. And as Laura and Almanzo got older, they no doubt said, okay, goodbye to the hay cradle and they moved on, but yet they hung on to it. So it it really meant something to them. That's right, because you never knew. (laughs) You you never knew. Is the train going to break down or is that new technology going to keep rolling down the track? They weren't sure. So I have to say, too, I love looking at books and trying to figure out why they put things in a certain place. And I noticed when I saw the image on page 30, there's this beautiful drawing, this beautiful illustration of acorns and I believe oak leaves. And they are also on the spine of your book in gold. If people ever look under the jacket, they'll see those there. What's the significance of the oaks and the oak leaves? 
Well, oaks appear over and over in the book. I'm so glad you said that. I haven't looked at the spine yet. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, every place you live, there are oaks. Oaks are native all across the country. I mean, you're not going to, I guess, see them in the desert. But, you know, basically, you go somewhere, you're going to find the local oaks. And so they appear in the first book prominently because she said there were two oaks in front of their cabin and each girl sort of claimed one, right? So Mary had one and Laura had one and they would play games under them and they would use the acorns as children do, right? To like make little teacups and things. Thus the picture of the oaks and the acorns. I love it. The other passage that I'd love to have you read starts on the bottom of page 31, and it's our first glimpse into a vegetable garden, an Ingalls vegetable garden. And there's a a special little passage in here I especially enjoyed, but I'm wondering if you can read that paragraph. It starts on the bottom of 31 and goes to the top of page 33. Yes. Regardless, the vegetable garden behind the log cabin was the first to appear in the series, and we suppose, the first she remembered. It isn't surprising what bubbled up as Laura's garden recollections. Weeding, not every child's favorite part of growing vegetables, and harvesting, which is much more fun. While collecting the dusty potatoes that Pa had dug sounds vaguely mundane, Laura's description of pulling the skinny carrots and the round turnips from their underground homes is rousing. The girls helped carry the root crops back underground, quote, down cellar, as she later calls it, for careful storage in bins and barrels. With the night temperatures taking a dive, the cellar, with its insulation of earth controlled humidity and temperature, kept the vegetables. Viable. I, that I loved because it was, I don't know, it's just a, a classic childhood memory of gardening, which of course is helping mom weed. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, my mother, who I think had to do that through her entire childhood, never grew a vegetable, <laughs> as far as I can remember as an adult. <laughs> I love it. No, the only thing she, she had chives and mint. Those were the only two edible things that grew in our suburban landscape, <laughs> which is odd because all of the, you know, I have three siblings. So the four of us all grew up to grow vegetables. Oh. So my mother always said, well, skip a generation. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Honestly. Well, let's talk just briefly about beets because you featured this fantastic illustration of a beet. And I know that 2018 is the National Garden Bureau's Year of the Beet. That's what they've declared 2018. I love it. Laura and Mary harvested beets. They helped harvest beets. Yes. It's an old, old crop. You know, it's one that we're familiar with. Maybe we like them and maybe we don't. Or maybe we acquire. uh, as I did. You acquire a liking for them as you get older. But it's a really fabulous vegetable, right? You've got this big root that has all this nutrient. You've got these great greens. It's entirely edible. It stores well. You know, it's like if you wanted to design a vegetable, you'd you'd design the beet. You would design the beat. The other image on this page, I think, is this a Garth Williams illustration where Laura and Mary are in the attic? They're sitting on pumpkins holding their dolls. Yes. 
Oh my gosh. The most charming thing you've ever seen. That one I remembered when I saw that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally remember this one. And I can't remember if I saw it in color or if it was colorized for your book. And it just, but the, I saw that and I immediately recognized it. So the older editions that had the Garth Williams illustrations were all in black and white. Okay. And so I'm not sure if he participated in the colorization of them. You know, the newer, fancier editions they have done in color. So this is the way they came from the publisher who gave me permission to use them. Oh, that's fantastic. And then the other thing I was struck by is when you're a little kid and you're looking at the picture, I was cued in on Mary's doll and Laura's doll. I was not seeing the fact that they're playing in this storage area for all of the vegetables that they had harvested throughout the year. Right. I mean, you know, what I'm doing is looking at the books with a different lens. Yeah. Now, most people probably just read and saw the plant-related stuff as background, right? You know, I certainly would have as a kid because it wasn't what I was looking for or thinking about. So, (laughs) You know, one of the points that you made was that with Laura's doll in particular, the eyes were made with pokeberry juice. And I had to laugh because I had just had a wonderful talk with some of the garden bloggers that had attended the garden bloggers fling. And we were talking about how all these weeds are making a comeback. You know, now we're growing milkweed for butterflies and different things that have, that are, have been considered weedy in the past are now vogue as we're incorporating more natives. And Tracy Blevins of Plants Map jokingly said, what's next? Pokeberry? Is pokeberry going to be in oh, all of our gardens? I mean, it's, <laughs> yes, it should be. Poke is a great plant. They just have to figure out a, a way to make a sterile, let's call it nativar, of pokeweed. Because the problem is the roots go down to, you know, Timbuktu (laughs) and it wants to seed everywhere. So I do have it in my little wooded area in the back. But if it comes creeping up into my garden beds, I weed it out. But the stems are spectacular. The flowers are interesting. The berries are beautiful. (laughs) It ought to be a garden plant. So I'm with her. Well, you know, it also, it's a plant that my parents used to eat. They would, he, my father would come home with fresh shoots in the spring and my mother would boil it and boil it and boil it. They would eat it. I wouldn't eat it, but they would. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, when you see, when you hear about a plant like this, it's not like weeds are featured prominently in publications. So I had never seen a pokeberry before. To my knowledge, I didn't have any in my garden or in my area. I'm sure they're around here. I just didn't, didn't ever see one before. So when I saw it in the book, my instant reaction was, this is kind of pretty. I mean, the flower and the berries are very pretty. They're kind of, they kind of droop down. They're, I don't know, what do you, what would you call that? They're very, just very attractive looking. And the stems are bright bright kind of magenta. And I will tell you, I walk down with my camera to the power lines that are a block down from my house and took it, you know, it's in this little wild zone. And I took that picture myself. The things we do for art. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, there you go. So now we've had a little bit of a glimpse into life in the big woods. There's a little way that you end this, and you're talking about Pa. And the way you talk about him is exactly the way I remember reading about him when I was reading the book. So I love that you included this kind of sentimental passage about him. It's on page 41, and it really sets up the next section of the book. Sure. Hunting by the beam of the full moon, Pa perched in the wide, strong branches of an oak, watching the salt lick he had placed in the clearing to attract game. But sometimes when they walked into range, doe and fawn, even buck or bear, he couldn't bring himself to take them. He was not a tender foot, but did have a tender heart. It seems that Charles Ingalls was so sweet that even bees didn't sting him. When Pa found a bee tree and came home with a wagon full of honey and comb, Laura worried that the bees would not have enough food to keep up their busy work. But Pa assured his daughter that he had left them plenty. There even was a hollow tree nearby so that the hive could relocate. Pa said it was time for the bees to move. It was time for the Ingalls family to have a new home, too. But first, we will take a detour to Malone, New York, led by Laura Ingalls Wilder. Initially, what drew me to that passage is the fact that Pa is such a sweet guy. I mean, in a time when life was pretty darn harsh to have a male role model like this be so caring and so loving, that wasn't always the norm. I look back at my own genealogical work in my family history, and a lot of times the men are just very stoic and sometimes pretty harsh with their kids. And this was totally not the experience that Laura had growing up. And the other thing I think about is in terms of our effort to educate kids about bees today. We're trying to help them understand about pollinators and just bees in general, easing them into information, keeping it very light and simple. And here's what you include is this sentence here that says, Laura worried that the bees would not have enough food to keep up their busy work. And think how young she is, and she's worrying that. And today, I don't know that kids would even have that thought about, would there be enough honey left for the bees to survive? Especially when sweetness would have been so prized, right? So they did have maple syrup, Uh, They probably had a tiny bit of store-bought sugar for company, Uh, but honey would have been a really, really important thing. And, you know, at least the sentiment that she portrays in the book is this very tender one. And I don't get any indication from studying her life that she invented that part of her character in a false way, right? I mean, she is writing fiction, but I think she really was that kind of person, as was her father. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that he didn't hunt. I don't want to leave anybody with the wrong idea. He certainly did uh, hunt, and they did eat plenty of animals, but he he definitely expressed this feeling of being, being soft about the beauty of animals. 
Yeah. Uh, the way the way many hunters are great animal lovers. Yes. Well, and and those are the little nuances too, where you just really feel like no, this is their genuine character because otherwise you wouldn't even think to include little elements of the story like that. So it has to be really getting to the core of who they are. It's their values just kind of oozing through the story. The other thing that really struck me is so you're teeing up the fact that. Laura begins to tell the story of her husband, Almanzo, or Manly, which always drove me crazy as a little girl because I didn't understand how you get Manly from Almanzo. Neither here nor there, but, you know, just as a little kid, when you're reading, some things strike you and and other things don't. But what I really liked is how I could totally identify with how you set up this whole story of Almanzo's life growing up in New York because you said... If you read the Little House books in order, when you open Farmer Boy, you might think, as I did, where's Laura? And I remember that vividly going, what is this? Did they, are, are they like just abandoning this Laura story? I had no idea why we were even going to this new character. It made no sense to me for the longest time. And it's interesting because she does not give any help, no hint, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, there's no lifeline here. You just have to go with it. Yep. And that must have taken a lot of confidence, both on the part of author <laughs> and editor, to, to to not have a little note saying, hang in there, Laura will be back. It's just, nope, this is... This is the way it is. <laughs> You're right. And in fact, it was so abrupt. You know, by the time I'm reading this in the mid-1970s, all the books were out. And I think, I, I don't remember my mom buying them all at once, but we definitely had bought like the first four. And I had started Farmer Boy, I, I think, many, many times. And it just felt so disjoint to me. I couldn't read it fully until I was a little older. I couldn't, I certainly couldn't read it when I was seven years old. I just couldn't bring myself to. So every time I'd start it, I'd end up putting it aside. And then I'd just go on to another book that more, you know, talked about Laura and her family. So when I was reading this part of your book, where you're talking about what his life was like, in New York, from a very adult perspective, I really got into this part of the story. What are some of the standout features of this upbringing in, what is the name of the town where they grew up? So Malone, New York. Yeah, Malone, New York. What are some so, of the standout features there for you? For me, Farmer Boy is all about, you know, sort of people who have made it. And the all of this... <laughs> All of the Ingalls stories, so if you think of the whole series without Farmer Boy, all, all of those are Ingalls stories. Farmer Boy is a wilder story. The Wilders were successful farmers. You know, basically the family was successful their whole lives. And the Ingalls stories, is it's like constantly a struggle. Um, so that was one thing. Farmer Boy, there's a lot of food, and so it's a very rich food book. And because I love to eat, I love Farmer Boy. <laughs> um, but it's also a story of a boy who really wants something, right? He's kind of all through the story, you know, he wants to have a horse. And so that has a real charm as well. 
So there's a lot of experimentation. There's a lot of agricultural history. I mean, we talked about the hay cradle in the book before, but, you know, there's a ton of sort of farming how-to embedded in a very pleasant way in Farmer Boy. So if you're interested in the history of agriculture in America, boy, what a great way to get it. There were two things I really liked that you talked about in this part of your book. One is how Almanzo would have totally understood the value of a potato. And you talk about this at length. I loved this section. And then the other was right next to it. And it was about this milk-fed pumpkin, which totally intrigued me. (laughs) Yes, I was really puzzled about the milk-fed pumpkin. So in the story, there is this county fair, and he wants to enter a pumpkin. And so he goes into very specific detail about how he feeds it with milk. So he basically, you know, cuts the stem and puts in a, a, you know, a string so that it can have milk by osmosis. (laughs) I thought, you know, come on, this this is, sounds, sounds ridiculous. But there, there are descriptions of doing this in late 19th century publications that they would have had access to. So it wasn't like this was just entirely fabricated. And I have read like current science blogs about, you know, does it really work? And uh, I don't know, the jury's kind of out on that. But pumpkins are, they're A, heavy feeders, and B, they like a lot of um, liquid when they are bulking up. So (laughs) one of those things where it can't hurt. Um, Can't hurt. (laughs) Can't hurt. Um, But there are still all sorts of pumpkin contests. I mean, they've really gone large. Uh, That was not intended as a pun, but I guess it was. (laughs) You know, one other thing that I I was not familiar with is moose wood. So number one, I was really appreciative of the fact that you included a picture of what moose wood looks like because you describe Almanzo in Farmer Boy uh, making a little whip for training his calves that were named Star and Bright. And he used moose wood and braided it to make uh, what he called his little ox persuader. I liked that term for (laughs) for the little whip that he had to put together. That was very interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, moose wood is a a sort of understory tree. It is a little maple. Uh, It's a very, very beautiful tree because it has green. The new bark is green and the older bark is green and white striped. Uh, so it's very pretty. And so, of course, I had to crawl around in the woods and find a moose wood. So I tend not to use stock photos. I tend to go, oh, I got to go find one of these. It's part of the fun. Well, you did you did a great job. I mean, this was a great picture because it not only shows that gorgeous bark of the tree that you were just talking about, but then how all the little, I don't know, I would look at them and think they're suckers, but how they're growing out. And you can imagine how pliable they were. Yes, and that you could strip the bark and use it for the kind of the whip part, right? Yep. And that that would be, you know, be flexible so that you could nudge on a baby, I guess it's their baby oxen that he's training to be um, 
to be plow animals. Yeah. Well, next up is truly the Little House on the Prairie. We're starting this section that you call harrowing because it's the prairie of Kansas and Indian Territory. And the quote that starts it all off is, the land that you could not see the end of. That yes. This was quite a, an adventure. And you show the a promotional poster from 1880 that would draw people down into Indian Territory. And there is the illustration that you reference from Garth Williams that I think everyone will remember of those two little girls staring out the back of the wagon with their little dog running beside them. That was, that was really, I mean, that was something that was etched into my mind. Yes, the little dog Jack, who plays such an important role in the story. So it's, you know, that idea of land that's so open, uh, coming from a very young girl who had grown up in Wisconsin, surrounded by trees, to this very open landscape was something that resonated for me because I grew up in New Jersey, in a very kind of hilly part of New Jersey, lots of trees. And my mother, who was from central Illinois, uh, you know, we'd all go out. That would be our family vacation in the summer. We'd all go out and visit the family. She'd say, well, we're going to go home, you know, and <laughs> visit the family. And so we'd get out to about Ohio, like the middle of Ohio, and all of a sudden the land would change. And it was just, it was really striking. So that certainly struck me as well. Well, the other thing uh, for me growing up in southwestern Minnesota that I really loved is how you spent a little bit of time talking about cottonwoods. My grandparents uh, farmed in Cottonwood County, which would have been just south of Walnut Grove. And even when Dutch elm disease went through our town in the early 70s, the tree that my parents picked to replace the boulevard tree, this beautiful elm that we had, was a cottonwood because, of course, they knew coming from the farm that that cottonwood tree would grow very quickly and they'd have shade again in no time. And you talked about that in the book. Yes, they grow fast. It's Again, it's a tree that appears in a lot of the books, so an important prairie tree, um, you know, and it's a, it's a tree with some American history as well, because Meriwether Lewis describes it on the Lewis and Clark expedition. So, of course, as a garden historian, that was, oh, you know, it's great looking to include Lewis and Clark. <laughs> of course. And the other thing that I thought was that I, I loved this term and I had never heard it before, but of course, Laura and her sister are always out picking flowers, which always made Ma happy. And there's a part in here where um, you referred to the prairie as daisy land because there's so many daisy family members in the prairie. Yes, I only wish I had made that up, but it is footnoted in the back. <laughs> it's another prairie writer, but I, I liked it so much that I used it. 
<laughs> well, and I don't know why I had a tr- I had trouble like shortening it to Daisyland because of all the TV shows. I wanted to call it Daisylandia. I don't know why. Oh, I like <laughs> yeah, Daisylandia. So, but oh, yeah, can I, I use that for my next book? You absolutely can. But I, but you know, I, I guess I never thought about that. That there were so many various Daisy family members in the prairie that all those flowers had that happy look. Yes. So if you look at my garden right now, it is Daisylandia because basically I've got a lot of different Rudbeckias, um, a lot of like Heliopsis, Helianthemum, uh, Dahlias, right? It's all Daisy stuff. So I love Daisylandia. That's brilliant. Yeah. Daisylandia. Uh, now we start, we're heading into where, uh, in, in my mind, she's coming back home because she's a Creekside in Minnesota, in Iowa. The library system where I grew up and, and is uh, still there today is called the Plum Creek Library System. So I, when I was reading these terms in her books growing up, those were you know just terms of various things in my community, part of the culture of growing up in southwestern Minnesota. So I identified with so much of it. One of the things that I thought was so special and I did not know about until I read your book. So last night as I was getting ready for this interview, I quickly jumped on Amazon and I bought a copy of the little book of poetry that Pa had given to Laura when they moved to this part of Minnesota. And it was called The Flowerette, A Child's Book of Poetry. And you say she kept it for the rest of her life. I thought it was very sweet. And you shared a couple of samples of the poetry that was in this book that Pa had given her when they started to settle Creekside in Minnesota and Iowa. And I was wondering if you'd read that for us on page 101. And I'd like to just, you know, sort of ask everyone to think back to a book or two from your childhood. You might still have them or you might not, but ones that were really formative. So that's what I, I'm at least assuming, right? She never said that, but I'm at least assuming that. So when I read through the floweret, here were the ones that struck me. Uh, The protagonists of the poems model behaviors that she will echo. Anna, for example, shows good comportment. Anna, with a smiling face, came from the garden bowers and brought to put in mother's vase an apron full of flowers. Another poem scorns Miss Nellie, who sits in the parlor in her muslin and lace with simpering face rather than running in the fields in a calico frock. And in a third selection, a little girl named Lucy gets a lesson from Mother Nature. Bird and insect, flower and tree, know they must not idle be. Each has something it must do, little Lucy, so must you. (laughs) Isn't that sweet? Yeah, I couldn't resist. I thought, oh, I'd like to have a copy of that. So I jumped on Amazon and I was thrilled to see I could get it. and, And I think it was like 18 bucks or something. So I can't wait to get it. Did you actually get a copy of this when you were doing your research? I did not. I looked at one on, you know, archives.org. Oh, you know, sure. So I could look at it um, full screen, including, um, you know, there were some little engravings on the cover. But I had indulged myself in buying so many 
old gardening and farming books <laughs> to get illustrations because that's one way I get them. These, you know, like the beat that you saw. Oh, sure. Uh, but I decided I needed to behave. <laughs> <laughs> Rain it in a little bit, huh? A little, yeah. Yeah, just a little bit. Well, I love how you notice things from a horticultural perspective that most readers would not. And on page 108, you say, Wilder took some artistic license in the spring timing of her morning glory bloom. Because in the book, she finds morning glories blooming in the dugout when they arrive in May. And of course... I know what it's like in May in Minnesota, and nothing really starts heating up here until about the middle of June. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time, this is not Minnesota, but the first time I went to Maine, I wanted to see gardens uh, like near Bar Harbor. And so I said to my husband, it was Memorial Day weekend coming up, I said, let's go to Maine and see gardens. Well, we practically oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, uh, yes, she, you know, she, again, you have to remember that the books, the, the Little House books are fiction. But given that, you know, she does still include a lot of information about how morning glories grow. So, One thing that I did not realize is the poignancy with which the Ingalls left Walnut Grove, the irony that the grasshoppers drove them out and they were pretty much destitute when they left. And it was just a circumstance of bad timing here. <laughs> I thought I'd have you read two paragraphs right before the bottom. It starts out, Pa returned. Yeah, so... The grasshoppers came in and basically ate everything green, not just their crops, but basically everything. One thing that you can take away from rereading Wilder is it's really a story of endurance and, you know, people that just kept going. So here we go. Pa returned some months later, again by foot, wages in hand. We can hope he made it back in the in time for the birth of his son, Charles Frederick, Freddie, born on the 1st of November, 1875. The next spring, Laura remembered her father getting his seed wheat off the train. Both the state and county government sponsored some sporadic farm relief efforts to citizens in need during the years of infestation. But when grasshoppers hatched again, Pa said he had enough. He wouldn't stay in such a blasted country. Sad to say, Charles Ingalls was a master of bad timing. He sold his farm in early July 1876, almost breaking even with his initial investment, but with little to show for his two years of backbreaking work. The next year, the grasshoppers departed. Walnut Grove farmers took in a record crop in 1877 but the Ingleses were not there to see it. Hmm. I mean, isn't that sad, right? Yeah. He just, he, he didn't, he didn't hang on long enough. If you go to Plum Creek today, um, the actual site where the uh, dugout and where the Ingles house was is in the back of somebody's farm, but they, you know, they kindly let you go in to see it uh, and they maintain it. Um, 
and you look back, and there's this lovely farm, this kind of nice farmhouse, and it's just very idyllic. Um, it's sort of like a, a calendar shot for a farm. <laughs> and, you know, it's like Pa would be amazed to see it. Right? He just, his timing wasn't good. No. I mean, Wilder said, you know, my Pa was no businessman. He was a, and a hunter and a poet, I think, yeah. something like that, a musician, but, yes. you know, no business man. He scraped by, and they had a wonderful family life, uh, so he had a very rich life, but he was very poor in any measure of material things. My great-grandfather was farming south of this area during this time, and he was a little boy, and from eight years old, his own father had passed away, and so he was always working in fields for other farmers. And he wrote a letter that was published in the newspaper when he was an old man where he was telling about his life. And he said, when I was seven years old, I herded cattle and sheep for our neighbor for $4 a month. His name was A.G. Kylan. And uh, of course, down in that area is Kylan Woods. We started herding the 15th of May. We herded to the 15th of October, rain or shine, every day of the week, 10 to 12 hours a day in all kinds of weather. And then he goes on to tell about all the different farms that he had worked on through his life. And he ends it by saying, my history is too long to write. If I could write all the hardship I went through, the people would not believe it. And lots of the settlers that came before we did had it harder yet. Started farming for my family when I was 26 without any money to speak of and had hard going for years, still no money, have farm cropped with rheumatism, had 50 days of schooling in my life. If this letter is too long, maybe you can shorten it and improve it a little. I kept thinking about this experience of, you know, what these people went through and the fact that in many cases, in my family's case, they didn't move. In the Ingalls case, they did move. The circumstances were so terrible, they had nothing to lose. They might as well move and try somewhere else. And so you see that that mix of people that stay, but then you have others that are like, you know what, we're going to try our luck somewhere else. And this is kind of the Ingalls story. They moved and moved and moved until they settle yeah. in Desmet. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Wilder always said that Pa had itchy feet, right? Yeah. That he, he always wanted to move on. And there are people like that. You know, it's a sort of personality thing. Um, but it's, again, I think whether you're someone who has experience of farming in your family or not, it's a... It's a story of, you know, kind of whatever you encounter, how do you handle it? Yes. And, and how do you keep going? Yes. When you start this next section that's called Ripening, and it's all about the Dakota Prairie, it starts out with this quote from the shores of Silver Lake, and I, and I loved it because she said, We're west of Minnesota and north of Indian Territory, so naturally the flowers and grasses are not the same. And I love how she just kind of mentions this so casually. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, again, isn't that what we're trying to teach ourselves again that we have these sort of very local um, biomes, if that's the word, right? And that so we need to, to pay attention to that. And now mostly to try to either save our last remnants 
or to try to restore them, you know, try to put them back if, if there is such a thing. Um, and yes, this is just like a little throw off line in, in the whole book, but you know, for obvious reasons, that one really, you know, it, sparkled when I came across it. (laughs) I agree. Well, and Pa, one of his first things is he plants cottonwoods outside of their home. And this is really a place where they finally settle down. I can't find exactly where it's written, but they essentially say, you know what, we're going to settle here. They put down roots at last and the Smet becomes their home. You know, they do make it in terms of staking a claim and then actually working through the claim and sticking it out at least long enough that the land is theirs. You know, they eventually then settle in town, but they make it through the long winter. They make it out the other side and the Smith's their home. So it's where Charles and Caroline Ingalls and Mary live the rest of their lives. And in addition to that, this is where Laura meets Almanzo. Oh, that's right. And so we have romance. And, you know, what story isn't better for a romance? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so finally, yeah, you get to the Dakota books and you go, oh, now I understand why we had Farmer Boy. <laughs> yes, you're right. Because <laughs> he finally shows up again. He shows up again. And also, you point out that there were some flowers connected to their romance, especially violets and roses. Yes. So if you are less interested in beets and wheat and more interested in flowers, uh, you know, the flowers of the prairie do get a lot of play in these books. Uh, Violets show up over and over again. There are lots of different violets on the prairie, but violets also are fairly ubiquitous around North America. Uh, And prairie roses come up over and over again. So, you know, they'll be out courting and she'll talk about the prairie roses and he proposes and they're surrounded with roses. And then they have, they get married, they have a daughter and then they name her Rose. So, it keeps coming up. So again, you you get a uh, you get a little education in a very subtle and you know easy to take way about the kinds of uh, flora that were surrounding them. It's so sweet. And then you also did your homework because you found a little post in the town paper announcing their wedding. It's on the bottom of page 197. It's the final two paragraphs. Do you want to share that with us? All right, here we go. Before the Christmas holidays, Almanzo returned. Uh, He had been with his brother looking down south to see if they wanted to buy new land. Almanzo returned, resolved to stay in Desmet. The following year, the town paper carried the announcement of the wedding of Almanzo and Laura at the residence of the officiating clergyman, Reverend R.E. Brown, August 25th, 1855. The editor included commentary and good wishes. Quote, thus two more of our respected young people have united in the journey of life. May their voyage be pleasant and their joys be many and their sorrows few. Bessie and Manley, as they called one another, moved to his land north of town. Newly married and newly settled, she remembered being a little awed by my new estate. 
Laura felt that she had found her place in the world. Hmm. I didn't realize that he called her Bessie. I guess I kind of forgot that. He called her Bessie. Yes, he had a sister named Laura, so he didn't want to call her Laura. Uh, Elizabeth was her middle name, and so he called her Bessie oh, okay. for the that rest of their lives. And so, in fact, her, her daughter, as she, at least as she got older, called her Mama Bess. Oh. Wow. Including in letters. So, you know, this was a, a common, you know, familiar term for her mother. Huh. Who knew? When you're talking about their early life together, one of the stories I particularly enjoyed is they got rhubarb, apparently, from his sister, Eliza. So uh, Eliza <laughs> Eliza brings brings her some rhubarb to plant. And the other thing I got a kick out of is... Uh, again, you were like, hmm, the timing of this seems weird because, you know, she's harvesting rhubarb or she's making these rhubarb uh, dishes and she's sharing them. And it seemed a little too late in the year to you until you discovered that rhubarb can be lightly harvested kind of all through the summer in the Midwest. Yes. And thus, in New Jersey, I've been harvesting <laughs> lightly my rhubarb all summer. <laughs> No, oh, I, I love mean, that. So, you know, you you grow up with certain ideas, right? And my idea was always rhubarb is a spring crop. Yeah. You cut it when the strawberries come in and you make strawberry and rhubarb pie. And that's what rhubarb's for. And now I love rhubarb. And I like it in all sorts of different ways, not just in strawberry rhubarb pie. But I had continued with that idea that, you know, it's the only time you see it in the farmer's market. You know, I have a few plants, but it's the only time I harvest it because I thought, oh, I'll hurt it if I keep cutting <laughs> which isn't true. It's just what I believed. Trust me when I say that writing a book like this is a learning experience for me as well. <laughs> well, absolutely. And, you know, I think that there I have seen from time to time people talking about don't harvest your rhubarb after the spring, let the plant regenerate. So I think there has been, you know, some some commentary out there about not doing that. So to me, it wasn't surprising, but growing up here, I know that if you want a couple of stalks of rhubarb, you get a hankering for, for a strawberry rhubarb dessert. It's not a problem to go out and get a few stalks. So that's Well, plus, that's I'll fantastic. tell you, when I was driving around places like Minnesota, you know, I'd look behind somebody's house and they would have this monster rhubarb plant. <laughs> yes. Now, mine are like these little pathetic East Coast plants. Oh. <laughs> Although I do have friends with big rhubarb, so I, I think it's me, not the not the actual horticultural stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I looked at those and thought, yeah, she could have harvested at harvest time, you oh, know, yeah. for, the, <laughs> for the guys who are running the threshing machine. <laughs> Oh, I Everything love grows bigger on the prairie. I yes. mean, it would be my uh, my aunt's vegetable garden. <laughs> well, provide, provided it likes it here, absolutely. If it likes it, it'll do great. If it doesn't, forget it. So, And it's got to, of course, be cold-hardy. And rhubarb loves that dormancy. It loves to be cold. So, you know, the other crop I think that caught my attention is after Laura and Almanzo move down to the Ozarks, they end up with an apple orchard, and they're growing the Ben Davis apple. And it's on page 233, 
And it starts out long hailed as a mortgage lifter. Can you read that paragraph? That was fantastic. Long hailed as a mortgage lifter, Ben Davis was an apple farmer's dream. Farmers all over the country, including Almanzo Wilder, loved the variety because the trees matured quickly and started to bear heavy crops of market-ready fruit in under 10 years. One writer in the April 1895 Kansas City Journal stated that if he were to plant a thousand-tree orchard, first he would select 999 of the Ben Davis variety, and the last one would be Ben Davis. This isn't literally true. To get the heaviest fruit set, Ben Davis trees trees appreciate pollination from another variety. In Almanzo's case, while the majority of his trees were Ben Davis, a portion were Missouri Pippins, another apple sold by Stark Brothers in the 1890s. The Ben Davis apple. The Ben Davis apple, evidently not a great eating apple, but very, very sturdy. It reminds me of my feelings about delicious apples, red delicious apples. It's like, well, they look nice on the shelf, but it wouldn't be my first choice in an eating apple. Hmm. Well, and uh, you said that this was, the Ben Davis was a forebearer to the Cortland. Yes. So there is some genetic material from the Ben Davis in the Cortland apple, um, you'd have to ask the guy at Seed Savers to change <laughs> uh, exactly how that works, but uh, that is true. Well, the the apple trees to me represented uh, kind of a new beginning, but also an ending because when the apple trees started bearing fruit around 1902, that was the same year that Pa passed away, and Laura was able to go and say goodbye to him. That's right. So, you know, a lot of people, when they moved away at that time, that was kind of the last you'd see of your family. Um, but, you know, Laura had enough money by then that she was able to buy a train ticket and go back to the set and uh, be with her father when he died. So bittersweet, bittersweet. When you're talking about their life together, Laura and Almanzo and their daughter Rose in the Ozarks, I learned so much about the family dynamic between Bessie and Manly and then their daughter, Rose. And I didn't realize that Rose was such a jet setter. Oh, yes. Rose was quite a character. She was very, very smart. She was kind of a in that new woman movement where she learned telegraphy, she moves away, she gets married, she takes up writing, she gets successful. Uh, I mean, she kind of supported her parents once she made it uh, and, you know, traveled all over Europe, lived in various places. She really had a very, very interesting life. She did, and and incredibly, she had a soft spot for Albania. I could hardly believe it. Yeah, well, evidently it's a very beautiful country. And she was traveling with a friend, and they just fell in love with the landscape, which is very mountainous, and the people who were very friendly to them. And she really thought about, you know, kind of having a villa. Um, probably land was reasonable, and she had money at the time. I mean, Rose 
Wilder Lane. Uh, she did divorce, but she always kept her husband's name. Um, was like the best paid magazine writer of her generation. Oh, you're so kidding! She was making really big money. Um, you know, and and there were you know it wasn't a lot of lightweights in that in that sort of between the wars crowd. So she was wow. really very very popular. She wrote fiction and nonfiction. Uh, although some of her nonfiction was evidently highly fictionalized. <laughs> wow. um, but that's another story. Hmm. To me, it was just such a contrast from how I understood, you know, Laura's upbringing and then her life. And then um, her daughter, for a lot of her adult life, was not around. She was in California. She was in Europe. And Laura and Almanzo were back home. There were a few times when Laura came out and visited her in California. And it sounded like she had some experiences. And I loved the description of Laura experiencing her first train ride out to California. Yeah. So you have to imagine Laura Ingalls Wilder, right? She's now well into adulthood. She has started in a very small way a being a professional writer by writing for a farm, you know, a wide circulation farm newspaper. And she goes out to visit her daughter, to see her daughter, but also to be coached in writing techniques uh, with the idea that this could be an easier kind of cash income compared to chickens, you know, or, you know, her other options. But she takes a train ride by herself. So Almanza stays home, take care of the farm, right? You can't just leave the farm. Um, And she writes him a series of postcards uh, that they always keep, and that after her death, her daughter brings out in book form called West from Home. So they are available. Uh, I'm sure the book's out of print, but they are available. And so the descriptions of looking out the train, you know, going through the desert, going through the great, you know, across the Great Soul Lake are all there and, you know, going into the mountains and and really, again, captures this idea of this woman was really a nature writer, you know, in her way. She had grown so accustomed to using descriptive language thanks to her sister Mary, because, of course, when Mary went blind, it was up to Laura to kind of be her eyes. And she worked really hard to describe the world around her so that Mary could appreciate, you know, what was going on. Yes, no experience in life is wasted. I always always tell that to students. Regardless of, you know, what you've done, things help you out. And the chickens, I I was so glad you mentioned Laura's chickens because you say in your book that they not only provided cash, but they also laid a golden egg because the chickens were what launched Laura's writing career. Yes, her very first articles for local newspapers, you know, this would be like writing for the equivalent of your town paper, were how to get your chickens to lay in the winter, which evidently was a problem. I never raised chickens, but, uh, you know, that was the thing to worry about. And she was evidently good at it. So uh, then she was invited to do a talk, uh, which she wrote out. She couldn't 
I think, go that day. I think she was sick, but somebody read her paper and an, an editor of this larger farm journal heard her paper and said, you know, why don't you write for me? Why don't you do like a regular feature? And so thus she became a regular writer for the Missouri Ruralists. And again, those are all collected now, thanks to her fame from the Little House book. So you can read all of her garden articles from the Missouri Ruralists. And, you know, the other thing that I thought was interesting is just in the little bit of time that she went out and visited her daughter in San Francisco when she was out there, she managed to get some things published in the San Francisco Bulletin. Probably with probably with Rose's help, I'm imagining. But one of the most adorable things that you found is this cute little poem that's called Naughty Four O'Clocks. Would you read that to us and then maybe tell us a little <laughs> bit about this story? I loved it. Sure. So Rose worked for the San Francisco Bulletin, and she did, among other things, write poems to put in this kind of children's corner. And so while her mother was out there, evidently she wrote up some poems too. So it's called The tuck in Corner. Naughty Four O'Clocks by Laura Ingalls Wilder. There were some naughty flowers once who were careless in their play. They got their petals torn and soiled as they swung in the dust all day, then went to bed at four o'clock with faces covered tight to keep the fairy Drop O'Do from washing them at night. Poor Drop O'Do, what could she do? She said to the fairy queen. I cannot get those four clocks to keep their faces clean. The mighty storm king heard the tale. My winds and rain, roared he, shall wash those naughty flowers well, as flowers all should be. So raindrops came and caught them all before they went to bed and washed those little four o'clocks at three o'clock instead. <laughs> Isn't that charming? Yeah. It's charming. I don't know if it's going to win any poetry prizes. <laughs> but it's very charming. It's written by someone who understands that four o'clock's open late in the day. And uh, it sounds like it's used to little kids who may not really wash themselves too well in the summer. Yeah, I love that part. And the other thing I thought was very interesting is how she talked about what she called making garden from seed catalogs. And so it reminded me of, you know how in People Magazine, they show celebrities and then they'll be like, Angelina Jolie, she's just like us. You know, she goes and gets coffee, you know, from Starbucks or whatever. And when I read this part, I thought, Laura Ingalls Wilder, just like us, she gets her seed catalog and she's imagining, you know, her garden, thanks to all the seed catalogs and the things that she wants to put in her garden next year. I thought that was great. Yes, it's nice to know, right? I mean, she did save some seeds as well, but she certainly was not immune to the seed catalogs and the, you know, the marketing appeal of getting a seed catalog in the dead of winter when you just are, you know, crying out for spring. Exactly. You know, one of the other things that was a charming thing of note that I discovered was on page 275 as you're talking about, I think Rose was traveling with Laura at this point. And again, they were making their way, I think, to California. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. 
but they were trying cantaloupe for the first time and they just fell in love with it. And so as they're eating this cantaloupe, they're saving the seeds to send back to Almanzo so that they can grow cantaloupe. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So, you know, I do that now. I uh, If I get something, we got a, I think it's a catawba melon, this little, lovely little melon uh, at the organic stand at our farmer's market last weekend. And I thought, hmm, I'm going to save some of these seeds. I'll try them next year. And so they were doing that too. They went through Rocky Ford, you know, long famous for its cantaloupe. And they decided that they really wanted to have, try them next year. So they're spitting out those seeds and just wrapping them up in something to <laughs> send them home. I love that. I, I guess I didn't appreciate how successful Rose had been. But right before the stock market crash, she helps her parents build a gorgeous home in the Ozarks. So they have their old farmhouse and then she helps them build this very nice new home. Well, she actually builds it for them as a Christmas present. So it was way beyond helping. Uh, it, they were her plans. Uh, it was her idea. Her parents went along with it. I, I think this is one of those things where, you know, you have an adult child and they get a bee in their bonnet. This particular bee for Rose was, I'm going to have this Ozark farmhouse, I'm going to do it up, and I'm going to have it to be sort of a writer's colony, and I'm going to invite all of my cosmopolitan friends to come out here, you know, for a month or two at a time and write in this beautiful Ozark setting. And so <laughs> to make that happen, she had to relocate her parents. So she. Uh, you know, the farm is big, so she picks a lot on the other side of the farm, not next door, and builds them this house. She gets plans from Sears. She has an architect modify them. It, it is a very charming house. I mean, it wasn't like she put them in the shack next door. Um, and she even builds a house across the street for a hired man, right, thinking this out. You know, I'm going to be a farm manager. Uh, so yes, Rose really had money and she loved to build, absolutely loved building projects. She said they were, you know, kind of her fatal flaw. <laughs> fatal flaw. Well, you know, the one thing that you had talked about earlier that I really liked in your book is all of the little personal stories that you share throughout each of these sections in the book. And the one that followed this description of the house that Rose had built is one of my favorites. So it's on page 280. And I'm wondering if you would read that. And then let's talk about these vignettes and some of the inspiration behind them. All right, here we go. For my 20th birthday, my mother and father got me a lawnmower. At least that is how I remember it. Unlike the Wilders, it wasn't the daughter who left home, but rather the parents. Toward the end of his career, Dad's company closed his New York office. If he wanted a job, he would have to move himself back to the corporate office in San Francisco without benefit of a relocation package. If management thought that my father, then in his mid-50s, would retire, they didn't know him well. My parents packed up the car, handed me the house keys and the instructions for the new Sears mower, and headed west. 
Now, when I think of Laura's San Francisco connections, I am reminded that my parents relished their second California sojourn, the last great adventure that recalled their youth. They had, after all, met at a San Francisco skating rink during the Second World War. Mom said she fell in love with a uniform. Then, after he finally retired, my parents moved back to the house in New Jersey, drawn by the gravitational pull of five grandchildren. I happily yielded the lawn mowing into my father's capable hands once more. My mother's gardening efforts, never more than lukewarm, shrunk to harvesting from the clump of chives that grew along the post and rail fence and digging dandelions with an old kitchen knife. Many years later, when Mom was alone in the house, I resumed mowing her lawn. I was always in a hurry. By then, in my late 40s, busy with husband, home, and career, I had too many irons in the fire, as she liked to say. When she came out to pick up sticks from the grass while I was mowing, I was annoyed. I was also oblivious. It wasn't until her younger sister came to visit that I learned a lesson. Let her help, Aunt Donnie said. She just wants to help. It was a gentle reprimand, but I felt it. I remember it still, with remorse, every time I pass the old house or pick up a stick in my own yard. Sorry, Mom. To Rose Wilder Lane, let me say, I understand. Sorry okay. about that. Getting Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very hard thing to write and obviously hard to read. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was so touching. And I relate to it because I'm in my late 40s. And I can totally relate to that. Yes. So, you know, Rose did her best by her parents. Although her parents, frankly, rather, they they wanted to live in the farmhouse. And the minute Rose decamped, they moved right back into the farmhouse. And they rented out the the newer house that Rose had built them. They really preferred the farmhouse. It was their place. And so it's something that, you know, you do struggle with as parents age in, in whatever way. You know, with me, it was a sort of a gardening way with a lawn mowing. With Rose, it was uh, even more complicated, I think. Yeah. I'm sure she wasn't thrilled to find out that they weren't living there anymore. But I did I did catch that part in the book when you mentioned that. It's like she left to go back to Europe and the minute she was gone, they were out of that nice big house and back in the farmhouse. I thought, yep, there you go. We all live our own lives. So Yes. And interestingly, you know, if if things got a little tight for them in terms of the budget in the farmhouse, they just shut the electricity off. And I think this was like a great annoyance for her because she'd gone to a lot of trouble and expense to get that farmhouse wired for electricity. Oh, yes, of course. You know, I think about it, you know, I got my folks the Apple TV. You think they're using Apple TV? (laughs) Probably have never even got it for them because they're not using it. But because they really didn't want it, right? You wanted them to have it. Exactly. (laughs) And they could care less. So, you know, we have oodles of TV in the house. I love TV. I watch a lot of television. And, uh, you know, my mom cut the cable. You know, she doesn't have cable. So, of course, I would want her to have Apple TV so that at least they have something. But, of course, they're happy as is. So, And I should say, I had no intention, Jennifer, of writing about myself when I started writing this book. And certainly not about anybody else in my family, but I was, you know, writing along chapter one 
I, I'm very like mundane. I tend to write in order, right? So I start at the beginning and I start to write blah, blah, blah. And I got to this part of black, black walnuts. And, and I suddenly decided I needed to write down this story about my father and the black walnuts. And then it was a little embarrassing because, you know, it's like, what is my editor going to say? So I said it to him and like waited <laughs> and waited. <laughs> And he said, looks good. And I said, like, so you're okay with these little essays, this idea of it. Because I thought, well, you know, maybe I can make it work. And so as I went along, I would just see, like, well, what occurred to me? Uh, so I think one of, the, one of the really interesting things about Laura Ingalls Wilder's writing is she does somehow push the nostalgia button. She does. You're right. You know, and it, I was not a farm kid, so I couldn't say, you know, I had a farmy up, upbringing. You know, that was a generation removed from me. And yet, when I reread the books and started thinking about them in detail, all of this stuff came up. And so it was very interesting because it seemed like, you know, her writing... I. I don't know, the muse, something took me by the elbow and started writing down these kind of personal memoir essays. And there they are. Well, and I will say they're very much in um, her writing voice, I think, the way you wrote about your stories. In fact, the first time is that walnut story that you shared. And I got all the way through it and then I'm like, M.M. I'm like, oh, this is this is Marta's story. And I and then I went back and reread it again. And then as I started to see them, these little essays, these little vignettes appear throughout the book, I was really looking forward to them. So I love that you did that. I think it's a very creative way to, you know, add a little more of that nostalgia element to the book. I really, really liked it. And I'm glad you brought up the walnut one because somehow as we were talking, I missed having you read that one. But that was the other one. That was one of my personal favorites. The other one that I really liked was um, where you talk about, well, I guess there were two actually. One is you talk about what it was like to be driving through the prairie, through all of these different locations, because you did tour all of the locations where Laura had lived. And you talk about getting out of your car. And I loved that one in your reaction, I guess, to all of the the prairie, the endless prairie, I can totally relate to. Then there's another one you talk about where you're driving through the prairie, through the Dakotas and, you know, how boring it is. And, you know, are we there yet? And you're recalling this a similar drive that you had from your child I loved that one. But the walnut one, I think, also is the one, in addition to where you talk about your mom and the mowing, that really stuck out for me. And I'd love it if you'd read that one. It's the very first one. So this is where that, you know, sort of aspect of the book all began. So I'm writing about, you know, various things in Wisconsin and the Oaks. And I get to the fall, and the girls are collecting black walnuts. So here's Laura and Mary collecting black walnuts. And then I think about my father and black walnuts. So here we go. I wonder if Pa cracked the walnuts that Laura and Mary collected. Why do I wonder? 
The secret to how my own father extracted black walnut meat intact from their shells died with him. Dad gathered the nuts each fall from around town. He was a small, wiry man with strong, deft hands that gnarled with arthritis as he aged. Outside the garage, he spread the nuts on his soil sifter to dry, covered with an old window screen to foil the squirrels. I know he husked the nuts outdoors, removing their fragrant outer cases, then brought them, still in their shells, down into the basement to cure. At that point, the veil of mystery descends. My next memory of black walnuts was the smell and flavor of my mother's nutball cookies, a part of Christmas as much as the tree and the manger scene. The first time I tried to harvest black walnuts was the autumn after we had buried my father. Collecting them was easy as black walnut trees are relatively common in New Jersey, just as they were for the Ingalls in Wisconsin. In removing the husks, I stained my fingers with what seemed a permanent greenish-brown, as I learned an up-close-and-personal lesson in the strength of natural dyes. After the nuts had cured in the basement for about a month, I assembled a small arsenal, nutcrackers of various sizes and shapes, including one specifically advertised for black walnuts, and nut picks. Nut extraction day had arrived. If someone had been recording, at the time it would have been VHS, they would have had something worthy of America's Funniest Home Videos. Nuts bounced and ricocheted, but the shells didn't budge. They were so hard, I wondered if they might substitute for gravel and resurfacing roads. I graduated to a claw hammer, then a small sledge, and eventually managed to smash open a few nuts, pulverizing the nut meats at the same time. The result was a thick paste of walnut embedded with tiny shards of shell. I picked up the phone, but neither my brother nor my two sisters could shed light on bad techniques. I gave up. Two weeks later, a high-priced bag of shelled black walnuts from a Midwest supplier arrived in the mailbox. They just didn't taste the same. <laughs> now you can watch on YouTube. There are various videos <laughs> of people showing. It seems like the secret is a vice. Okay. And hold it in place. And a heavy-duty electrical wire snips. <laughs> okay. I would have never thought about that. Wire snips. Who knew? Yeah. The things we'd ask if we could go back and ask or pay more attention to. Absolutely. Toward the end of the book, because uh, we're getting to the end here, you share a couple of family pictures. One is, I think the closest thing we'll get to a selfie here, and it's of Almanzo. He's taking a picture of his goats. But the, oh, yes. <laughs> the best part about it is you kind of see him. Yes, his shadow shows up, which I think is really marvelous. Yeah. There are very, very few pictures of the Ingalls and Wilder families. Very few. It's it's really disappointing when you start researching. You know, I went out, most of her papers are at the Herbert Hoover Library, and I expected to find a lot of pictures that I hadn't seen before, but they, they just aren't that many. So you... You know, you rely on scraps of things like, oh, here's a picture of his goats and a picture of his shadow with his hat on. 
The other one, and it's in your book twice, it's right at the beginning. And my first question is, who is this? Because I didn't know. I assumed it was Laura, but I wasn't sure. And then later in the book, you say that this is a picture of Laura picking peas, except, of course, he called her Bessie picking peas. She's in her 50s. And she's just in her garden. It has to be one of the only garden shots you were able to find. It is the only shot of her working in the garden. You know, there are some pictures of her sort of standing in the yard, but that's the only one where she is working. I wish I knew exactly where the garden was positioned, because I'm not even sure, you know, the the exact location is lost. But uh, but it's fun that even that exists. So yeah. we have to be thankful for what's there. Yes. Well, Almanzo died in 1949, and Laura lived for quite a long time by herself. Yeah, she lived till 1957. So she made it to her 90th birthday, just a little tiny bit beyond, stayed in the farmhouse. That was her home. Uh, You know, she had friends. You know, they had some hired help. Um, Didn't really farm. You know, they they had sort of retired from farming, so, you know, didn't do too much Hmm. farming at that point, but uh, still enjoyed her life. Hmm. Could you give us an overview of all of the wonderful things that you include at the very back of your book? And then let's go back to the front and then we'll wrap things up. Okay. So, you know, we sort of talked through the first and the, you know, the majority of the book, which is a look through her life and her work and her plants and places. Um, In the second part, it's a little more practical in terms of if you want to go visit the home sites, here are some other natural sites or kind of farm-related sites that you might want to see at the same time. So, for example, if you go to Baroque, Iowa, go to Seed Savers Exchange. If you go to Mansfield, also be sure to go to Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. Um, You know, if you go to Minnesota, here is a wildflower garden you can see, and here's a restored prairie you can see, and things like that. Uh, Then there's the section on growing a wilder garden, which uh, you know, it was more philosophical, if anything. Uh, the practical part is a list of all of the plants mentioned in her writings or in writings like in letters that she and uh, Rose or other people exchanged. So I did my best to have a complete list of any plant, uh, be it, you know, flower, tree, vegetable, uh, grain, weed uh, mentioned in her work. So that if people are interested in growing some plant that she grew, they can go ahead and do that. Um, I always think it's a great way to refresh what you're growing is to try to grow something that someone else did. So, you know, it's a fun way to do it too. Yeah, that was a very impressive list, I thought. I, in fact, got a blue flag iris <laughs> to plant in my garden um, from Prairie Moon, I think, one of the prairie nurseries, uh, so that I would have something that would remind me of the book. Sure. Now, how do you find all of those? I mean, are you that 
focused and that able to hone in on everything you're reading that you can stay dedicated to that mission to find all of the flowers and all of the any type of plant material that's listed in her books or that's mentioned or how do you do that do you do a search and replace or a, or a find feature or what's your secret um, I should buy stock in 3M for the amount of post-it notes that I go through. Oh, really? <laughs> post-it flags. You know, you can't, unless you unless you had every plant, you can't really do a full pick search. You can if you know what you're looking for, right? So yeah. if the book is available as an ebook. Uh, which wasn't true of the Little House series when I started this. So I had to do it the old-fashioned way. Since then, they have come out with a set of Kindle or other, you know, e-reader type books. So I mark as I go and, uh, you know, collect them in a big old spreadsheet, eventually organize them. And for the letters that came when, when that came out, it came out as an ebook. But basically, I do it, you know, in a very labor-intensive, very time-consuming way. But because it's my thing, I, I like doing that part. It's a little scary, but true. A little scary, but true. See, now I would do it. I'd have all the intentions of doing it, and I'd be coming along really great for about two hours, and then I'd start to get a little kind of punch drunk on on scanning all of these pages, and then I would take a break, and then I would kind of freak out thinking, did I miss something there toward the end, you know, when I was starting to go a little blind looking for these, you know, plant terms? So then I'd have to go back and reread probably the last 10, 20 pages just to make sure I hadn't missed something. Do you find you do the same thing or you're just steely about it? No, I just, I do it. I just do it. It probably comes from, you know, my life as a programmer. You just kind of have to grit your teeth and and move forward. The hardest thing is that she always used common names. So... It was saying, well, do I really know what she's talking about? Uh, Luckily, I have friends who are prairie people and friends of the New York Botanical Garden. And people were really helpful. Uh, You know, I I called people like at the Kansas Forestry Service. Oh, gosh. (laughs) You know. People were incredibly helpful. There's a wildflower garden in Minneapolis. That's one thing I hope to see while I'm there. They were hugely helpful. The Eloise something wildflower garden. Butler, maybe. Yeah, Eloise Butler. That's right. They were so helpful to me. You know, so I had to rely on people who knew that flora because, you know, again, I'm a Jersey girl. So I'm writing about all these places that are not like where I'm living and trying to get all get it all right. As you're talking about that, you make mention of the fact that one time Laura was in California and Rose was sick. And she somehow, I think, maybe wrote it back in a letter that she was treating her with snake root, which you determined was echinacea. Well, I determined with the help of a professor in Kansas who okay. is like the, the king of echinacea and and like writes whole books about it. So again, people were incredibly kind to 
respond to queries. Uh, you know, it, talk about it takes a village. This it took a whole country. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh man. Well, I the the one thing I noticed in the front of your book, I think I know what it means, but I'd love to have you share with us if you don't mind. It's your dedication. Oh. <laughs> so my dedication is for Kay and Pat who remember and to Ginger and Lucia who will. So Kay and Pat are my sisters. Okay. And Ginger and Lucia are my granddaughters. And and this book is dedicated to both of them, you know, both of those groups. So to all of us who have nostalgia and to those of us who will have nostalgia someday, because part of the message that I leave with is that Wilder can be a way to get children to be interested in plants and gardens in the outside world. And, uh, you know, I hope that for some people that works out, um, you know, that, that that really can be a way to get kids outside planting things and harvesting things and appreciating the bees and the flowers and the birds. And I think people will be struck by how much of that is in the book because that wasn't the focus. You know, when you were reading it as a child, you weren't really aware that those were elements of the book that you were taking in, in addition to the storyline. But they're so prevalent in all of the books because it was such a part of her life. It was ingrained in everything she did and in every part of her life. And, you know, we've gotten to be so much of an indoor world. And so anything we can do to get the next generation outside is great. You're right. My last question has to do with your prologue. And I was thinking about that quote by William Shakespeare, what's past is prologue from his play, The Tempest. And today the phrase really stands for the idea that history sets the context for the present. And I thought it would be fitting to end by having you read your prologue to this book, it's an imagined scene from Mansfield, Missouri. And you wrote this about Laura from her perspective. And I think it's such a wonderful way to cap off our chat today. So this was written informed by memories that Rose had of arriving at their farm in Mansfield and first settling it, and um, a diary that Laura kept, which also was published after her death in a book form that has the title uh, On the Way Home. Uh, but as you mentioned, it is, it is imagined. So this is the way I picture a day at their farm. Late autumn, 1894, Mansfield, Missouri. She is bone-tired and sits down on the stump. Every inch of the just over five feet of her still pulses with the rhythm of the cross-cut saw that she and Almanzo just put aside. It feels good to take a break. She watches her husband limping downhill toward the cabin to check on Rose, their prairie Rose. She would be eight soon, as bright as a shiny penny, 
The other day, she wanted to know why her mama was out working with Papa, since the new place is in Mansfield. Well, this may be Mansfield, but this woman would do her share to make her farm a go. Almanzo says he'd rather have her at the other end of the crosscut saw than any man he's ever worked with. If only he could sell some loads of wood in town, that would be enough cash money to make it through the winter with the supplies they had packed along. It was a good thing they'd brought those chickens on the back of the wagon. She looks around at the trees, so many trees, and the funny tilts and angles of their new land. It is the Rocky Ridge, and Rocky Ridge Farm it will be called. She thinks of what it could be, stretches of orchard blooming in spring and bearing in fall, corn for the horses, a pig, a cow, of course, and more chickens. She could turn a profit with poultry, especially if Almanzo grew the feed. The cabin will do for now. Good thing it was here already. But she imagines a white farmhouse with porches and windows to gather up this beauty. She will plant her garden nearby, a big garden with peas and such. The barn should be close, too, as Almanzo still needs help hitching the team. Stretching, she looks down and sees patches of leaves growing here and there. Violets. The promise of their flowers makes the coming winter tolerable. Even with the shortening days, there are plenty of wild birds, and the trees have already set buds for next spring's leaves. Their new land infects her with an enthusiasm she hasn't felt in some time. She is smitten with the place, the ravine and the long hill up to the high field where dawn lights up its edge. The water from the spring is sweet. There is no shortage of wood to burn. Rose even caught a rabbit the other day. Leaning back on the stump, she thinks back to other stumps and other trees, big trees, and to Pa and Ma. Her parents had made so many farms so many gardens over the years. They just kept at it. She would too. Oh, Marta, thank you so much. You're welcome. See, I loved that prologue. It just really gave me an idea of what it was like for them to settle in that part of Missouri because I really didn't appreciate that that was where she spent the majority of her adult life. Yes, and as someone pointed out, I went to a couple of conferences. There was uh, one Wilder conference that the South Dakota Historical Society put on. And then later in the summer, there was Laura Palooza. And at one of them, someone pointed out that in the Ozarks, they would have been outsiders. So they really were starting all over again, not only in a new place and a new landscape, but with a very different kind of culture in a way. You know, people that would have spoken differently and eaten differently and and they really did make it and they really, you know, made that their home. So good for them. Yeah, good for them. Well, this was this was very special and you have many upcoming events on the horizon. So I have many upcoming events. <laughs> so my events calendar is a bit daunting. So I'll be in Illinois around Chicago. I'll be in Wisconsin. I'll be in Minneapolis and all over the place this, you know, in the coming months. So starting in September, we'll do some things on the East Coast too. So 
Uh, if anyone wants to hear more, I hope I'll see them at one of those events. Yes, that's fantastic. I know I'll spend some time with you when you're in Minneapolis. I'm looking forward to that. That will be fun. I'll get to meet you in person for once. And I'm so excited. Yeah, that'll be a great time. Maybe we can go to the Eloise Butler Wildflower Garden together. I'd love to do that. Yeah, that would be great. And then you also have some social media accounts. People can find you there as well as your website. Do you want to give folks the locations and names of all of those? Absolutely. If you just look for me under Marta McDowell, you will find me on Facebook and Twitter. I do have an Instagram account, which I am woefully bad about posting to. Uh, and my website is martamcdowell.com. So I am not hard to find. Thank you very much, Marta. The book is called The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder. The Frontier Landscapes that inspired the Little House books. For anybody who loved reading those books, they'll certainly enjoy this book in particular. Thanks, Jennifer. And thank you for your very close read. (laughs) As always, my pleasure, for sure. I look forward to spending the afternoon with you on the 21st. Well, it's a date. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Marta. Be well. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, that's it for our show today, featuring the always fabulous Marta McDowell and her latest book, The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspired the Little House Books. I hope you enjoyed the trip down memory lane and the thrill of learning the inspiring true story of Laura and her family, and especially her love for the natural world. This show is such a sentimental one for me, and I'm so glad I could share it with you. I'm so thankful to my team at Podfly Productions. I want to thank my fabulous editor, Eric Begay, my copywriter, Ein Kadena, and my project manager, David Gregerson. Just a reminder, I'll have all of the generous information that was shared on the show today on the Still Growing Podcast page over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. I'd also like to thank the people that make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm, and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. I'd also like to thank Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi, and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine, Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport, Patricia Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan, and she's the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens. Also in the group is Deb Gibson and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager over at American Beauty's Native Plants. And she was also featured back in episode 553, where we talked all about native plants and incorporating them into your garden. Well, by the time this episode airs on the 15th of September, I'll be getting ready to go see Marta in person. She's heading into town on the 21st of September on her book tour, and we're going to spend the afternoon together over at the Eloise Butler Wildflower Garden and Bird Sanctuary. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing Marta in person. I'm going to bring my books and have her sign everything. If you're in the Twin Cities and you want to see Marta, 
She'll be here on the 21st of September at the Majors and Quinn Bookstore at 7 p.m. on the 21st. If you'd like to join us, it would be a thrill to meet you as well. All right. Well, even though the kids are back at school, somehow we have no groceries. So I need to wrap this up, order some groceries, and make sure these guys are headed off to bed. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.